The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on to a special trade edition. 15 and 60 here in the Eastern Conference. Danny and I go through, look at what's interesting us about all of the 15 teams in the conference during the 15 and 60, which usually takes a little bit longer, as you can probably see from your podcast player. So ironically, I was going to watch Cleveland and Indiana play tonight. <laughs> and then we're like, nah, maybe we should just do the show earlier. So I went through and I did some film work on Karis LeVert. And as I was in the middle of doing that, he gets traded from Indiana to Cleveland. It, it was pretty fantastic. And I didn't know that you had already started your work. So I'm like, well, we're done with Cavs and Pacers. And then you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> saw, saw that the trade had happened. And so the specifics of this deal, the Cleveland Cavaliers are sending Ricky Rubio, who is injured for this year, but also on an expiring contract, their own lottery protected 2022 first. We don't know as of this recording exactly what happens to the pick after that, but we both fully expect the Cavs to make the playoffs. So probably doesn't matter. Houston's 2022 seconds. That's pretty juicy. Probably top four in the second round this year. And then a Utah 2027 second as well. And then the Indiana Pacers are sending Karis LeVert and Miami's 2022 second to the Cavaliers. So the initial reaction for me is this is a lot to give up for Levert. That's a pretty good second that they're giving up as well, that Houston second. My hope for Cleveland had been that they could upgrade at the two, maybe more temporarily, by just giving up that second that they have from Houston. Instead, it takes both that and their lotto protected first, which will, as of right now, projects to be around 20th. And I think Cleveland will probably continue on about that level. And, you know, I think we can talk about, it certainly makes more sense to give up a first for Karis LeVert than it would have Eric Gordon at his age or Gary Harris as a, an expiring contract. Doesn't seem like they now need Dennis Schroeder from that disabled player exception. The money is pretty equal. So the Cavs tax situation where they're only 3.8 million below the tax even after this, they're right in that range before the trade, taking just taking on Dennis Schroeder into the disabled player exception and getting the Celtics out of the cat tax would have put them in the tax. They would have had other stuff to do there. So it does make more sense because I, I had said, hey, if you're Cleveland, you don't want to give up a first round pick unless it's for someone that can be part of your group going forward. And it seems like that is their view of Karis LeVert. That's why they're willing to give up. But I thought it was a pretty good package. Like Karis LeVert is probably, uh, well, I, I guess I'll leave it to you here. How do you see LeVert as fitting in here in Cleveland? We'll talk about that. And then we can talk maybe about the price that was paid to acquire. Him. That makes sense as an order. And why I am very low on this trade for the Cavaliers is 
this is a challenging balance to strike for a team that under this iteration has done nothing playoff-wise. But my my thought on this is always, you think of players and you think of what they do in terms of different stages, potentially, of the playoffs or getting you there, those, those types of things. And so Cleveland, getting there in a certain way would be an accomplishment. I mean, this is not based on what we expected, especially me for the season for them. That is an absolute triumph. However, Evan Mobley is a damn good player. Garland and Allen have taken huge strides forward. This is an exceedingly young team. My thought is that Cleveland should have been and should be now thinking more about, maybe not this year, but in the future, not just the first round of the playoffs, but the second, third, and fourth rounds of the playoffs. And Karis LeVert, as a starting player, to me does not fit that threshold. I don't think that he is good enough defensively, and I don't think that he is dynamic enough offensively as an on-ball creator or good enough off-ball as an off-ball guy to fit that. And so to me, if you're giving up not only a first, but a first and a high-value second, and you're taking on his $18.8 million for next year, because now they're, you know, this is getting dicey in terms of the, the tax next year if they're going to keep Sexton, you're doing that for a player who makes sense with your team the way it works. And I just don't think Levert does enough there to justify it. I would have been fine with Cleveland, you know, like had I had them in the mock deadline, I would have been fine with them giving up a first for an upgrade. I just don't like this upgrade. Yeah, I, I think to me, Levert does very clearly fill a need for them this year. It was pointed out in Woj's piece, which usually Woj will have a pretty good idea of what some party involved in this is thinking that the Cavs are 29th in drives per game. They basically had two guys who drive and now only one with the, the demise of Rubio. And Karis Levert is top 10 in the NBA was the stat in points off of drives. And he can get penetration. And I also think that he's not a guy who gets all the way to the cup and finishes athletically, but he does have a pretty good handle. And he also can create some floaters, short mid-rangers. Given the spacing that I think they expect to have in a lot of their units, at least with Mobley and Allen together, less so when Kevin Love or Larry Markkinen are playing the four, you're able to, you can't get all the way to the rim sometimes, but you can create a, a shot in an ISO that's a short mid-ranger. And yeah, that's not the absolute most efficient shot in the world, but it's better than just having to pass around the perimeter, never creating an opening at all, and then just having to jack up a contested three by someone who doesn't want to do that or someone trying to post up who can't post up or something like that. So he does fill a need there. They needed a second scorer. They needed someone else who could dribble. Levert can also play on the second unit. You could kind of a de facto point guard role. You can put someone next to him who can maybe a little more shooting focused at that position. This is also a potential hedge against the loss of Colin Sexton in restricted free agency if he were to get a big deal. This is also would allow them to just trade Colin Sexton now if there were a team that were interested in it. Maybe they could recoup some of these assets, probably not all of them, in a Sexton trade as he goes into restricted free agency. Obviously, he can't play, it looks like, the rest of the year. And then, you know, I would say Sexton, to me, is a better offensive player than Levert. I like his three-point shooting better. Levert has more size, although, as you mentioned, his defense has never particularly wowed. But he's also not someone who's just going to get attacked. You don't run into this playing Garland and Sexton together. It's just too difficult defensively. I would have liked, I think, though, for Cleveland, you're trying to think of the long-term vision of this team. And they do need a second guy overall who can dribble. If you're going to play Mobley and 
Allen together, you got to have some other sort of penetrator from the perimeter who can also then play on the second unit as well. I think part of what they're thinking is now we don't have to throw in a bunch of resources for backup point guard next year either if we have Levert. And that wouldn't be the case maybe if we had Sexton because Levert's a better passer than Sexton. And that also, if they had gone for more of the kind of normal shooting guard type who could maybe shoot a little bit better, maybe defend a little better than Levert, but didn't have the ball skills, then you still need that other penetrator, I think it is the thought so this is kind of one way that they could have built their team and maybe there's a hope that at some point Evan Mobley could become enough of an offensive force that you could run a lot through him Anthony Davis style but he's not close to being at that point yet unless he's being guarded by Christian Wood so this this kind of fills a need it's there wasn't necessarily another two guard on the market who was going to fulfill this sort of need. So I understand the thinking, but I think you know, there is an opportunity cost to this as well, because if you look at this team long-term, they also need a three and you wonder how they're going to get that. Maybe they could have drafted that guy with their pick this year. Uh, maybe they could have tr- used that pick and some others in the future to trade for someone. I'm not saying they should have traded for someone like Jeremy Grant right now, but at some point they're going to n- need someone better than Isaac Okoro at the three and better than Lowry Markinen at the three who can actually guard the other team's best players. And then maybe they just feel like we can go with like a very defense focused guy, but then you also don't have much spacing. So by getting Levert now and with his defensive limitations, now you really need a lot out of that three man. You need a guy who can really shoot it. You're looking for a Mikhail Bridges, right? A guy who could really shoot it and can also defend the other team's best player. And I know those guys are really hard to come by. I think harder to come by than guys with Levert's skill set. And so I wouldn't have wanted to push chips in that much for someone with Levert's skill set when I think getting a real three was the greater long-term need for this team. Even more basic than that, I, and I've been lower on, I'm just not a huge fan of Karis Levert, is throw in those chips, even if he's not the biggest need, on someone that you are confident has the strengths and in some ways, just as importantly, the lack of weaknesses that you're confident they will be in a closing five alongside the players that you're confident will be there with you. And so for a guard, that's, that's Garland, Mobley, and Allen. And I don't think Levert, when we're talking second round of the playoffs, third round of the playoffs, I don't think he's good enough. I don't think he does the things they need. I don't think that, and can, yes, it's good that Karis Levert is shooting roughly 39% this year on catch and shoot threes. That's not, he doesn't do much of it. He takes fewer than two a game. So maybe you think there's a little bit more untapped potential, but he's not good enough defensively. And Portland is a good example. There are a lot of them you could do in the past of teams playing two small guards. Like there are real limitations. Cleveland has better size than most of those teams, but you're going to run into some real challenges. You can, you don't have, want to have two guys that you can hunt. And Karis Levert also, Caitlin Cooper's done a great job talking about this. And she, she brought up the the point that he Levert has been a very bad fit for Rick Carlisle's offense and Carlisle can be a very controlling coach and so not doing what he wants to do can be a big problem for Carlisle but the Cavs are a better situation I don't know that how much of that you can take out and then the other frustration for me with Levert is yes he's had some real lost time I mean with the the absence last year and everything else I mean he's only played at this point Karis Levert has only played 50 games or more in an NBA season twice his first and second years in the league that part matters a little bit less because it isn't always a durability thing it's that he's already 27 so do we think that Karis Levert has 
two more levels to go up as a player on either offense or defense from where he is right now, I wouldn't put money on it. I wouldn't put money on that for basically anybody who's not only 27, but came into the league in the 2016 draft. Like that's a long time ago. There's been a long time, even with his absences to improve. And when he's been put in situations where those teams were competitive, it wasn't like Levert delivered. And we're really like wondering what he can be like. He, he was, he had a nice 2019 playoffs. Yeah, it was fine. Chance he's had, but, it, but I, I mean, I agree. I don't think he's like, you know, I don't think he's the guy who's just going to be like killing people in the playoffs to really push you know he's, he's what, is, what is his, his career true shooting percentage is well below the average he doesn't really get to the foul line his career true shooting is it's 53 percent, which is exactly what he has this year right yeah you know again i think just even more just from a general philosophy standpoint i've been, we've been talking about the Cavs moving this pick for a month now and i just in a general principle have been against it and you mentioned Levert's age he's gonna need to get a contract extension you would think if they're giving up this much to get him they are at least as of now interested in extending him but but nate when would kobe altman ever give a lucrative extension <laughs> i mean many of those have worked out in time but that is extending guys early has been a part of the Cavs MO though Levert won't have as much yeah. time with the franchise as let's say Kevin Love Jetty Osman and Larry Nansen yeah I, I mean the one of the my big criticisms of the Cavs and hey you know what like they've made some pretty good moves like Jared Allen and his contract and you know I was against that put that one in the Cavs ledger and, and against mine I, I understand that but they do have a history of getting a little high in their own supply and I think they are this move is somewhat in that vein because yeah okay you know like we're going to talk about their stats in a second they've got a the advanced stats love them they say they got a chance to be the number two seed i'm sorry i am not going to favor the cleveland cavaliers even with karis lavert over basically any realistic opponent that they would have in this year's playoffs i think they're just too inexperienced and they are have too many weaknesses as a team lavert fixes a few of those but he also creates a couple others and jb bickerstaff has never really been a playoff coach I mean, i'm not saying they can't win it but i wouldn't favor them it, and you know assuming everyone's healthy obviously injuries whatever that could change um you have you just drafted a great prospect and you have another guy in his third year like that's the core of your team you just made the all-star team darius garland so to say hey we're gonna push in anything right now i just don't see the purpose of it and yeah you know they might be a little bit better and levert's young enough if you extend him okay you know we'll give it let's say we give him a three-year extension so that's his age 29 through 31 seasons i don't know that karis levert at age 29 through 31 is a starter quality player maybe he is maybe not you know i think we you and i ranked him i i forget what yours was but i ranked him i think around 20th in the shooting guard rankings last year that's probably about where i'd have him this year as well again with a slightly different skill set than a lot of these two guards have but to me it's still about hey let's be good three years from now when Darius Garland is his sixth year Evan Mobley is in his fourth year let's make that our goal and I think this hurts that goal to me to give up a first rounder of someone who could potentially you know all right the 20th pick probably that Karis LeVert was the 20th pick right probably turns out on average worse than Karis LeVert but it has a chance of being good it has a chance of being a guy who can contribute at a more valuable position than LeVert and obviously that would be a, a cheap contributor as well it could also be someone that you could trade or you might be able to trade for someone at the draft using this pick as well so I think when you're talking about three years from now 
having three-year-old Karis LeVert making over $20 million per year in all likelihood, that hurts you for that point. And yeah, you might be a little bit better this year, but you're still like the gain now is not worth it to me. And yes, like this is, there's more certainty with getting LeVert now. I, I get all that. But then, and then also you have to throw in that they had to give up that Houston pick as well. You know, that's a, it could have been another pretty valuable asset, another cheap contributor for them potentially, or a, a trade possibility at the draft. I, I just, we'll see how they look. We'll see how LeVert looks. I, I don't expect LeVert. I think if anything, LeVert will be a little bit worse than he's been so far because this isn't a great spacing team. And yeah, you know what? Having someone who can create some resilient offense and on the second unit, so you don't get killed when Garland's off the floor. All that sounds great, but I it's still, what is the ceiling of acquiring a guy with a career 53% true shooting percentage to be a primary creator for you? I just don't really see it. Before we move on from the Cavaliers, let's talk about their season, so the, everything so far. They are 32 and 21 so far on the year, plus 3.8 net rating is seventh. I mean, that's still absolutely impressive for them and the Cavs. In terms of SRS, which has been one of the most interesting things when you when you go through the record plus the scheduling stuff, Cleveland still first in the East. 4.21 SRS is third in the East. It is sixth in the NBA. Sorry, it's fifth. It's behind four teams in the West. And they are 20th in offense, robust third in defense. And there's a big cluster. This will come up, of course, during the rest of this podcast in the in the top of the Eastern Conference when it comes down to the Raptor, the 538th Raptor model. But they are currently tied for fifth and very close to fourth and very close to like seventh, eighth and all that. So that also might have been part of the motivation for Kobe Altman making this deal. 80% chance of making the playoffs for Raptor, 97 on ELO because they played so well. Yeah, and Raptor doesn't like their players quite as much. Getting LeVert, I think, will lock them in, they would hope to at least getting a top six seed. Although we don't know the protection on that pick yet. It's not totally insane to think that they could still fall out of it. The East is so bunched up. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. I also want to talk about the Cavaliers' finances. Sure. There's also an opportunity cost here in terms of maybe signing a free agent in the offseason. They are now going to be about $4 million over the cap with Levert next year. And they're taking on his $18.8 million rather than just letting that come off the books with Rubio. And then that leads, of course, to Colin Sexton, who is a restricted free agent. I think now that you have Levert, it doesn't make a ton of sense to bring back Sexton. And perhaps there's just a belief that he wasn't that good, that his salary demands were astronomical, that they weren't going to be able to get there with him. And they have about... 22 million below the tax next year so they could in theory bring him back if they wanted to maybe they'll want to just do that to preserve the asset it doesn't hurt to have a third ball handling guard although clearly sexton would be viewed as as a bench player i think yeah, sexton could point. also be intensely squeezed by the market because there are so few teams with cap space and yeah. now a team that wanted him you know let's say it were the pistons a team that wanted him could very easily assume hey the Cavs aren't going to match anything so we could let's try a reasonable offer and let's see what happens i think the Cavs will probably be in the situation of deciding between either the mid-level or retaining sexton and perhaps it, that just depends what's out there for the mid-level they could also create a little bit more space by moving off of jetty osmond next year making 7.4 million that's the last year of his deal that's guaranteed for example they still will need to get a, a backup point guard in free agency as well. They still don't have a real three on this roster is any good. Maybe we'll see how Okoro does the rest of this year. Presumably he'll be moving now 
uh, into a bench role rather than starting at the two for them. Let's talk about before we turn to the Pacers portion of this. The oh, wait, I want to have one more. I, have, yeah. I want to talk about one more year for the Cavs finances, which is oh, good, 2020, good. which is 2023. Right now, if theoretically the Cavs let, let both Love and Levert walk, both of those players theoretically could sign extensions or something else. Cleveland could have functional cap space in 2023. They're, they'd have to fill out the roster, but let's say 25 million without clearing any additional salary. And there are a couple different things uh, that that includes Osman's year as well. So you could, you want to say it's closer to 30 million. You could do that. The problem is this means any, any significant contracts that they sign between now and then, whether that's a Levert extension or Sexton getting multiple years and you keep his keeping him around that starts to run into it. So they don't have cap space for 22, but you start to have to really think about it for 23. And that is absolutely their last bite at the apple because then a is the next year. Maybe, maybe they could do something in 24 if they, if they think that he's just not a part of it, but, and then it's 25 is the year the Mobley's there. So they probably have one more bite at the apple. And if they use that bite to extend Karis Levert, this becomes an even more disastrous trade. Right. And you mentioned some of the health issues, although recently that I wouldn't consider the kidney issue to be something For that's sure. going to linger. And he Thankfully. hasn't had much else other than that. Uh, let's take a look at what this does to the overall market though Dennis Schroeder we mentioned that that they seem like the most logical place for him that's not going to happen now anymore one would think unless there were another way to, to move some money the Cavs don't really have any particularly expendable salary at this point in time so Rubio oh, oh you're only. not you're not talking about a Rajon Rondo for Dennis Schroeder trade <laughs> You know, I guess Saxon would be potentially expiring salary, but I, I don't think the Cavs uh, feel like they need anyone else at this point in the backcourt. The Eric Gordon market, it seemed like the Cavs were one of the teams that might be willing to give up a first for Gordon. If you were the Cavs, would you have rather given up just a first for Gordon or the first in the Houston second? I'm not counting that Miami second is worth much. That's going to be in the 50s. Um, And there's another second that's going to, that's a ways out that's going to Cleveland too, right? Correct. What is that one again? It's the Utah 2027 second. Yeah, all right, that could be something, but it's also a second that's seven years away, six years away, five years yeah. away. <laughs> it's 2022 now. Uh, Who knows what year it is anyway. Yeah. So, so would you have rather not given up the second and gotten Gordon rather than Levert? I would have because I a I think Gordon is a better player, and I think that the Levert Levert will age better. But I also don't think that particularly matters. But also the idea of their next contracts that Gordon he'll pro- if he if things work he'll stick around. If not, it gives Cleveland it would have given Cleveland a way to kind of get out cleanly. Unfortunately, with Gordon, it is a non guaranteed year, so he would have to clear waivers theoretically. Like there are some challenges there, but I think it would have been yeah. possible to make a reunion if that's what everybody really wanted but also they could go in a different direction at that juncture so i would have i would have preferred that to levert i don't love gordon's fit on the Cavs because the idea that i like invest on a switching system so the defensive part of it you know cleveland can do some of that depending on the configuration and i understand why they preferred levert but i don't so yeah yeah i mean i i think i probably if i had if those are my only two options then you know I mean, I, I probably would have rather given up just the Houston second to get Gary Harris instead. That that probably would have been my my preference. Um, let's yeah, uh, before, and then before, to finish out the market yeah, is that yeah, yeah, Gary Harris is another one where it doesn't have as obvious of a landing space now. Uh, so yeah, be very interesting to see what if anything maybe Gordon gets held onto, maybe Schroeder gets held onto, maybe 
you know, Harris getting held onto seems unlikely, but maybe they just want, would want his bird rights to, and bring him back. Um, but I know we've been going for a long t- time here, but it's probably time to talk about this from the Pacers' perspective. Before we do, let's get to their stats so we don't forget. Yeah, Pacers are nineteen and thirty-five on the season, a disappointing but understandable four and ten in their and since the last fifteen and sixty, they are now twenty-first in net rating. Remember, they were positive for a long time, but now they're in the negative with so many key players out. Now one of them traded. They are twenty-first negative one point four, fifteenth in offense, twenty-fifth in defense. That's a big drop off as well. The Raptor model projects that they will win 33 games which is 13th in the east so that's only above the two teams at the bottom and they are not making the playoffs and so so we talked about how this is a complicated deal for cleveland and it is not always a reciprocal even in a two-team trade of it's good for one team and it means bad for the other vice versa i think this is a phenomenal trade for the indiana pacers i think so and to i thought that getting a first for lavert was even a little bit rich because again i don't see him as the guy who's really going to help you win a championship so i didn't think there would be as much demand for him there are kind of these younger teams that are on the way up a little bit that might have had use for him but it didn't i I would be very curious to try to figure out and you know ask around or maybe see if there's reporting on this later of what else the market was for levert what other teams would have been interested in him i know in in the mock deadline new orleans was interested which wasn't i don't think they necessarily would be in real life but I understand why Dan was interested, but I one would think there must have been competition or maybe they just created some or maybe they just had to, were able to project enough internal leverage that they were able to say, hey, you got to throw this second in as well. I think they did well. You've said that Levert's overpaid a little bit. I, you know, I don't know that I would go that far. I guess, I, you know, the more I think about it, I'm a little bit higher on him now that I've really dug into it and thought about this trade than I was when I was taking the position a couple weeks ago, like, oh, he's, he's overpaid. I, he's, if he's overpaid, it's not by much. He is it, it's not by much. Player. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, I, you know, if we really think he's the 20th best shooting guard, that's kind of about what those guys get paid, at least if they are out of their rookie contracts. Still, I think with one year left on his deal, a guy they didn't necessarily want to extend. You mentioned that he wasn't a great fit for Rick Carlo. Well, imagine that someone not being a great fit for Rick Carlo. Uh, you know, it wasn't someone that they really wanted to retain. They have Duarte at that position that I think they would rather play at the two than the three where he had been playing. Yeah, I think they did really well here with him on an expiring. I mean, because if you just compare, for example, the guys who have gotten traded for two first round picks or guys that we expect to be in that range, you know, like, like Harrison Covington Barnes, Jeremy and, Grant. Yeah. Yeah. I think those guys obviously are just way more, or Aaron Gordon last year, sure. just way more valuable than Levert because they just play more of a, a premium position. You, know, you don't necessarily see guys at that position, the two guard position, because again, I think you can get, you know, is Karis Levert that much better than like Jordan Clarkson or something like that? Kind of the Levert passes a little bit more. Maybe he's got a little more size. They're probably about the same defensively, sadly enough. Uh, Clarkson shoots it better from the outside or at least more willingly but but you can get you know Levert is the type of guy I feel you can get like 90% of them so yeah I think they did very well here to not only get the first which I thought even that I thought would have been good and that's what I traded for in the mock deadline but then to get that second as well is pretty solid and I, I'm just ecstatic about it for Indiana now of course the focus will turn to the rest of the Pacers well, so, dealings uh, before yeah. we get to the rest of their dealings I want yeah. to uh, there's another huge component of this which I'm sure mattered to Herb Simon and we will talk about it but I'm guessing others won't which is how much this clarifies Indiana's books even absent another deal so at this point now moving off of Karis Levert's 
18.8 million for next year. The Pacers are closer. I believe they're closer to the tax right now than they than they were before the trade for this year. But now they're wide open after this year. And so even without making a Miles Turner trade, without making a Sabonis trade or something with Malcolm Brogdon in the offseason, which they cannot do right now, the Pacers are, are, are open. They could even potentially, depending on what happens moving moving forward at the deadline, be a cap space team this coming year. I don't know that there's something they really want to get out of being a cap space team. That just means they don't have a lot of money on the books. Yeah. And now they don't have feeling any pressure to do Levert. So this means that if they're doing a trade involving Turner, Sabonis, TJ Warren, it is significantly more palatable to take on money for next year or moving forward because you're not you're not compounding any of that. And theoretically, they could even, if there was something as a facilitator, they could do something else with Rubio. It actually gets thorny. That's the challenge of doing a trade if it is officially consummated before this far before the deadline, repackaging and all of that gets a little bit thorny. But they could, theoretically could make something happen. But this opens up more flexibility for Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers that they not only got off Levert, they not only traded Levert, but they traded him for an expiring salary. It's unfortunate probably for them that it's a player who is both hurt and because they already have TJ McConnell that you probably don't want to retain, even though Ruby, I, li- I like Rubio and I think he was valuable for the Cavs when healthy this year. But if you get all, check all those other boxes, not checking one of them, totally fine. Yeah, they've got a lot of optionality now this uh, offseason. You mentioned there's the cap space route. They could re-sign Warren. They could even re-sign Rubio. Recall that the Pacers were supposed to be the ones that That's were right. going to sign Rubio before the Suns swooped in and, and got him instead. So they might bring him back as a backup, but of course, he's not going to be able to play until January of next year, which is they'll need. But they also have McConnell as well. They could eventually move him. But they, they're actually, they have enough guys where signing Rubio would be maybe okay because and maybe there's a thought that they could spend more to bring him back if things go well next year once he returns from the injury so yeah maybe there is a thought that they could bring him back although with their cap space they could have just signed him probably anyway but maybe if they re- they re-sign warren or extend him and they wanted to re-sign rubio they would just stay over the cap in that instance so they're and they could also just be a cap team with 20 million in space I and mean, there isn't anyone too sexy that's uh, available there for them they've got brogdon if he's ever healthy duarte don't really have a three if they're going to trade one of sabonis or turner they're not going to have a four i don't think theoretically TJ, and we don't know what the hell is happening with tj warren either this year or moving forward he could fill one of right. those spots not both sure well exactly and you know they've got oshay Brissett. i don't think they see him as a starter necessarily so i think that they're still going to have a lot of work to do to rebuild their team but they still have assets to do it they also will have this Cavs pick they'll have their own pick that projects to be looking as of right now pretty eighth. good what'd you say it's looking yeah pretty, their pick is looking pretty good right exactly and I, I think that's that's important here too is that Levert was going to help them win games now they're you know, Brogdon if they want to kind of shut him down for the rest of the year let it, him get healthy it would or, not or be least... hard at all for the Pacers to have the fifth best lottery odds this year not right. hard at all they're based they they have the fifth worst record as we record this podcast actually yeah they they in Portland are kind of in very similar situations at the moment but yeah I mean the Pacers locking in top five lottery odds would be very useful this franchise this franchise has not had a pick higher than 10th since 1989 when they drafted George McLeod after 1988 when they drafted Rick Smith's second overall McLeod for those wondering was seventh overall so this is really interesting and it's just good value 
the Pacers aren't going anywhere this year and now we wait for if anything the Turner or Sabonis domino to drop but I think they can also just feel good if they don't get the offers they want for either of those guys hold on to them go into the offseason you feel like you got this other draft pick you still you got the Houston pick too you were able to at least get some assets and you're also going to tank for the rest of the year probably and that will so your own pick will be pretty good so I think this is a nice way to reset and I guess we'll see guys like Craig and Holiday maybe they could be available still as well we'll see on that what Uh, anything else on this finally yeah one other quick note our mutual colleague John Hollinger wrote wrote, talked about the comparison between what the Pacers got for Levert and what the Blazers got for Norman Powell not an apples to apples comparison because there were other players in the Powell Covington trade but you know the the Clippers the the Clippers did well they they gave up less overall unless you really like Keon Johnson which in you could say that if you think Keon Johnson is meaningfully better than the pick the Cavs are going to convey to the Pacers this year then you could maybe make that argument but I I think this makes the Clippers trade look better and Powell and Levert are not an apples to apples comparison either but you know that's it's another value check sort of in this that basically that it seems like the Cavs found Karis Levert a meaningfully better player plus contract than Norman Powell yeah it depends right if you if you want to re-sign Levert and you're gonna have to give him you'd say a three-year extension right like John's talking about the possibility of the that Cavs cap space in 23 that you noted if I have to predict it and given the Cavs history you don't give up this haul for a year and a half of Karis Levert I think unless he just totally implodes over the rest of this year I see them giving him an extension at at least what he's making now and possibly more and he and Powell are about the same age like Powell a little bit better as a player and, and I think I like him better for this Cavs team they he Paul can't create but he can finish and he's also way better defensively as well though still he's good for a two not so good for a three defensively although I still remember screaming for him to play and I think it was 2016 to guard Paul George after DeMar guarded him and that didn't go too well in any event yeah I don't know let's see what happens with Levert here it is nice to have that optionality I like them preserving the potential cap space it just doesn't feel given this organization given how much they gave up to get Karis Levert that that is what they are going to do I think they just they wanted someone who could create I think I think the Cavaliers think that Karis Levert is way better than Norman Powell and I think that's why this there is such a difference in the value received in theory. For the rest of this exercise, we're going to go in reverse alphabetical orders. So that means we're continuing with the Washington Wizards. The Wizards are 24 and 28, 5 and 8 since the last 15 and 60, including some absolutely desultory losses, one of which we will discuss. They are 23rd in net rating, negative 2.9 per 100 possessions. This is cleaning the glass net rating. If anybody's new to the pod, welcome. 24th in offense, 20th in defense. Raptor model projects that the Wiz will win 37 games, which would be 11th in the East. And their playoff odds have fallen a lot in both models. 15% Raptor, 9% ELO. Yikes. Yeah, and for the Wiz, it does seem that they've been disrupted some with the return of Bryant and Hajimura Bryant more so Bryant as we've mentioned before is starting there's suspicion among rival executives that they're trying to showcase him well he's got a negative 17 net rating in 155 minutes he hasn't been the same force offensively he was one of the highest percentage finishers around the room that hasn't emerged yet he's hitting a few threes okay he is one of the worst defensive centers in basketball even before the injury and coming back from an ACL you're not going to be amazing there he got 
completely lit up in this Suns game. I mean, there's just, you would hope that if you're a big center out there, yeah, you might get beat a few times, but at least you're going to make a few plays, right? Guys are going to drive. You're going to be there. They have to pass out or you force a miss around the right. I didn't see as I was watching this awful first half, really anything positive that he did defensively. And that's even the worst center should be taking up space in there to some degree, even if they're going to have mistakes or, or times that they get beat. Now, of course, Beal was out for the whiz here he's got this wrist issue that we haven't gotten a ton of clarity on yet nope um you know spencer dinwiddie has been playing very well and, and in fact they beat philly that was in philly right the previous game 115 113 yes that was in, much, that was in philadelphia yeah so dinwiddie though you know i thought he was active as a help defender he was not very good on ball thomas bryant and some of these other guys trying to guard all the sun's great pick and roll actions bane pick and rolls all this stuff was very difficult that was a disaster but the other problem was they just couldn't score in this game it, it was at one point 48 to 23 midway through the second quarter they basically didn't score for the whole first half of the second quarter and it was they don't have anybody who can really create you know kuzma at one point could do some iso stuff he's kind of more jacking threes right now just trying to attack off of closeouts that sort of thing the suns are too solid for that they weren't really giving him any kind of openings they were running a lot of stuff through kcp early uh including kcp i wouldn't say this is running something but they threw it ahead to him one on four he went one on one against the guy guarding him but there was help there so he couldn't drive by him and also he's kcp so he couldn't drive by him and he just pulls a 20 footer with no other Washington player even having set foot inside the arc yet on the possession. Kuzma had, but not. He was averaging 27 points, I think, over his last four coming in, but he had a struggle. And Aaron Holiday, I think, through three, when they had 50 points through three quarters, was their leading scorer with 11 points. He had a couple of nice drives to the rim, but obviously he's he's more of a backup quality guy. And they also just, when Bryant was out there, they didn't really have any answers for the pick and roll. They, you know, if you leave Bryant back, they're just going to go to the rim and finish around him. He got hit by the back screen a lot in these Spain pick and rolls. It's not all his fault. They tried blitzing the ball with him. Chris Paul is way too good for that. Devin Booker is way too good for that. They're able to hit the roller. DeAndre Ayton was getting a bunch of points early. It's kind of similar fashion where to back when Jokic was a lot worse defensively, people would always say like, oh, you know, like they're the stat, the ball handler is not scoring that much on a pick and roll. Yeah, that's because they're blitzing it. And why do you think these centers kill it? Because he's way out on the floor. Because if you leave him back, then the ball handler is going to just score. So Aiton, JaVale McGee, like those guys were getting pretty much anything at the rim. Then they come in with Harold Gafford actually played at the start of the third. Once Wes Unseld was just so disgusted with everyone, he finally decided to play the guy who has the, have the largest contractual commitment to out of any of these guys and Harold they were getting killed on the offensive glass when he was out there uh he wasn't able to do much he took a couple of bad floaters and kind of selfish shots as well I don't know I I just <laughs> there was just not very much to enjoy uh, about this game um but but Nate you know what you yeah. can enjoy about the Washington Wizards us talking about them on Monday yes <laughs> fantastic <laughs> Uh, you and I are going to do Heat Wizards for the NBA cast. We do not yet know about Bradley Veal's availability. Seven Eastern for Pacific. But before we head off from the Wizards, uh, interesting piece of news coming out from Adam Schefter because of where he was and where he's going. Sashi Brown was previously the Browns general manager, then took a role with Monumental Sports, which included the Washington Wizards. So Ted Leonsis, you know, has various teams within his purview. And Brown is now leaving the Monumental Sports slash Wizards family to become an executive with the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, I did have a little bit more on this game, but to oh, react to that, we... <laughs> 
Sorry, I just got a little depressed. I needed to like reload and then I can <laughs> then I can right, let's, talk, let's talk about Brown first. I mean, it's hard to talk about him because remember there was this tripartite relationship of three guys, Shepard, Brown, and then whoever the medical guy was, all reporting directly to Ted Leontis. I'd never heard anything that that changed. You know, when you talk to Wizards people or, or people who covered the Wizards, you know, they wrote it, there wasn't really much clarity on exactly what he was doing. Was he in a business role? Is he kind of in an analytics role? Like how how is it supposed to work? Like how much effect was he actually having on what you saw on the floor as a team? Tough to really say. So I I have no idea how this affects the Washington Wizards, other than that it was a weird arrangement to begin with, and I'm not that surprised it hasn't lasted. It seems like Tommy Shepard will have a larger voice within the room. What that means yeah, in terms perhaps of the, so. in terms of the the Wizards are in this weird place where some of the big decisions they need to make involve players that we know Tommy Shepard really likes, especially Thomas Bryant. So how how this all works out? I was just thinking about the weird logistics if the cat sorry if the Wizards were considering a Daniel Gafford trade, they can't do it now in the off season because he'll be making a lot more but he'll be making very little in 22-23 because this extension starts in 23-24 that'll be kind of fun actually that could be a mock a mock uh off season thing yes i suppose it could um but they also don't have any center under contract next year other than him so yeah. so that'll be but i also want to talk a little about Rui Hachimura 2 of 7 24 minutes in this one and the above the break three still looks very limited very hitchy very slow uh, he did uncork one in semi-transition that didn't didn't look very good they're still running isolations for him which i guess you know they didn't really have anyone else who was scoring so why not but th- those didn't look particularly compelling i mean i think when it, the only times that he's really found a ton of rhythm offensively i think has been when he's been as more of a four or even a small ball five where he can get around the rim and finish it gets set up there defensively was uh, pretty much didn't do much i mean he wasn't getting killed but he also wasn't really making any good plays either so he's come back i I don't he's got a negative 3.7 net rating which is not terrible but i also don't necessarily see how he's helping him you've got bertans now out of the rotation he did come in just again as unsolved was so disgusted at the start of the third uh, with how how it looked by the way the final was 95 to 80 that was with the wizards outscoring the suns 29 10 in the fourth oh boy total garbage time Wiz were five out of 24 from three really nobody had a, a good offensive game other than maybe holiday um i think that's all i got on these guys though let's move on to the toronto raptors they are 28 and 23 nine and six since the last 15 and 60 they've played a couple of interesting classics against both the bulls and the miami heat won both of them in the last week plus 1.4 net rating 13th in the nba up to 14th on offense pretty surprising for this group and they do it time and time again using the possession game 15th on defense that's a little bit disappointing but they've also had an, enough absences i, I think we'll, we'll take a look at the numbers for some of their combinations and that'll give us a little bit more look at, into them uh as we finish up here uh but they project for a tie for the seventh seed 45 wins 74 percent chance of playoffs raptor elo 80 percent also those are to make it into the top eight that's that's the playoffs not the play postseason or however it's going to be 
Yeah, I wanted to start with a big picture thought for the Raptors. I did this for a couple of teams that we'll go through, and it was mostly the kind of the top teams of the teams that have that kind of upside. Of when we distill it to kind of let's call it their core essence. What what how well is this team playing? And for me, with the Raptors, you can talk about a lot of the other guys, but also a lot of them have been out because I wanted a big enough sample size. It's Van Vliet and Siakam, and when those two players have shared the floor, the Raptors have been absolutely excellent. They have a plus seven net rating in over yeah. 2000 and, and it helps that those two guys never grow out of the game either <laughs> it does um when they're when they're both available um over 2000 possessions and that's a 115.6 offensive rating stunning as you talked about considering some of the short the limitations that we've talked about with this raptors team and a little bit better than a 109 defensive rating which is actually maybe a little worse than we'd expect but we talked about that before the raptors offense at some point will probably do a deeper dive but it is honestly a version of the the story that we've talked about before where they're so dominant on the offensive glass and in transition and so they're doing it that way rather than being significantly better as a half-court offense than we anticipate they're just turning the dial to 11 on the things that they do well instead i wanted to focus on gary trent jr's january he's had a really hot stretch was actually in continued into february but for the month of january trent jr 21 points a game on 58 percent true shooting 21 usage fueled as it has been for trent for a while by threes 42 percent on threes and he's taking more threes than twos his yeah. field goal percentage overall i think is like 44 percent. so yeah. it's and again the minutes too uh, to be, oh yeah because you're to average 21 points a game on only 21 usage that's that's like you're playing a lot of minutes to, to get that, right? Usually if you're averaging over 20 points a game, you probably have a, a usage in the mid-20s or you have to be just like unbelievably efficient. 58% true shooting is good, but it's not like so ridiculously efficient. On that point, in the month of January, he averaged 34 minutes a game. So yeah, that's that's a lot. 35 yeah, I guess on the it's season. not as many as I thought it would be. Yeah, 30, uh, to, to get 35 to on the season. And and, and Trent, so that those were his January-only stats. He dropped 33 on the Heat in the beginning of February and then 16 and 19 in the other two games. And so his full season stats are actually pretty much in line with that, what I just said. 56% true shooting on 21 usage. They're both around Trent Jr.'s career high. He's, he had a, I think that was his second year for the Blazers that were kind of overall similar numbers. For the season, more than half of Trent Jr.'s shots are threes and he's making 40% of them and taking 7.9 threes per game, which is a career high. But that's actually pretty much in line with his per 36 numbers in Portland. It's just that he's playing more with the Raptors. So you kind of want to always want to scale whether this is how this is relative to the, the a player whose minute and role changes in time. This is also the first time that Gary Trent Jr. has been positive in defensive EPM. That's estimated plus minus. You can see it on dunks and threes. Um, also worth noting, it's his first season, full season, not on the Portland Trailblazers, which, you know, playing with better teammates, you have to give credit and blame other places that can be helping GTJ. And he's ninth in offensive EPM among players that EPM classifies as shooting guards. There are a few players that I think are and are not, but if we want to use that as a rough proxy, and he's doing that by being like a not a huge creator, just by being efficient at what he does. And this week was also a time to reflect on the decision that Masai Ujiri and Neil O'Shea made trading Trent Jr. for Norman Powell. Powell oh yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't talk about this on Friday, but yes, absolutely, I would love to discuss this. Powell signed a much bigger contract, much longer contract at the time. Gary Trent Jr. only a three-year deal this year, next year, and then a player option. And I think Trent has been has been better this year. Not that Powell has been bad, but I, th I think Trent has done, has done well. He's fit in very well with what the Raptors want to do, hitting those threes and filling a role defensively. And so, I mean, I would say that the Raptors the Raptors should feel happy about 
about where they came out of it, except that Trent Jr. has played well enough that you start to wonder about that player option a little bit. And, you know, having Powell for a longer term, it, and, and I think they might have had an expectation maybe that Powell wanted even more in that contract than he got. Yeah, and if they want to extend him, he would have to opt in to that player option. And I think he may just not want to do that because he'll feel like he's going to get more. I'm not so sure about that. Let's see how he plays the rest of the year. And and they don't have to do something next summer either. They can potentially take it into next year. But he's younger than a lot of these other shooting guards. We, we talked about this, your Fournier's and your Hardaway's and your Powell's. All these guys who are making 18 to 20 million at the shooting guard position, Trent got that, although he got a, the player option because he was younger. And he's played the best, I would say, out, out of all those by a pretty significant margin. Now, he still is a little thirsty on the twos. You know, 46% from two is not great, but he creates a ton of threes. And this Raptors team, despite not having what you would consider great shooters, at some of the other positions they get enough three-point shooting out of van vliet and gary trent both those guys are over 39 percent both of them take more than eight threes per 36 minutes that they can get by offensively and then you know they can go get some rebounds as well did you have anything else on this i wanted to talk at least a little bit about what their starting lineup looks like now that we've seen at least some of them together we can go there that sounds good so the, their starting lineup that we like so much is Van Vliet, Trent Jr., Barnes, Siakam, and Anobi. A lot of good players don't have a traditional center. There's been a lot of noise that they're trying to acquire a traditional center. And I that lineup is very sexy to me. Not playing a center is pretty sexy. Doing all this switching is sexy. That lineup is not unbelievable. It's plus 1.3 net ring. Only 485 possessions, of course. They don't get on the offensive glass. Only 23% offensive rebounds. Not nearly as much as they're doing overall as a team and then they give up a ton on the defensive glass which has been a raptors bugaboo since even before the the nurse era they allow 30 percent offensive rebounds which makes things a little bit difficult and they force 15 percent turnovers that's solid 82nd percentile but not like unbelievable and pretty average on offense and defense basically so it hasn't been that sexy yet they're uh, they're young guys i'd like to see them learn to play with each other more i'd like them to continue this experiment those are clearly their five best players you'd like to get all of those guys on the floor at once it really changes things a lot for their team building if you're not playing Barnes, Siakam, and Ananobi together, if you decide that that's not effective and you bring in another center, yes, you could say, hey, we're just going to split up all of the minutes at the three and the four between these three guys. Although Siakam and Barnes are a little shooting challenged at the three, and even Ananobi, you'd like to have his level of shooting at the four. He's not really a great shooter at the three. So that I, I continue to like to see more of this lineup, but the numbers so far, again, only 485 possessions, so basically four games worth five games worth haven't been as great as you would like to see so far they're gonna have to be awesome defensively and supplemental rim protection can always be a challenge in switching lineups and there are a lot of good defenders but they're necessarily people who are fantastic at that we'll have to keep an eye on it the philadelphia 76ers are next reverse alphabetically they are 32 and 21 on the season 10 and 5 since the last 1560 including a win on sunday in chicago over the bulls 119 108 they are up to ninth in net rating plus 3.2 ninth in offense 10th in defense 
And 538, the Raptor model, projects that they will finish in a tie for the second place in the Eastern Conference, tied with the Bucks. We'll get to them in a bit. With 50 wins, they're going to make the playoffs. And I had trouble. I was talking about the kind of core elements. Who counts as the core in Philadelphia? I thought about just doing Joel Embiid, but I thought it'd be more fun to do two players. And so Embiid and Curry before today's game, plus 6.6 net rating in about 2,000 possessions. Yeah, probably would make sense to throw Maxi in there. Could do that too. Well. That, yeah, that would be that would be another way to do it. But uh, you started narrowing the positions down. I, I chose Curry instead. Yeah. So I watched their game today against the Bulls. We'll talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into these Simmons Harden discussions. Although Steve Nash did throw a little cold water on it. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Very, very annoying. And the how dare you is for Steve Nash, not for you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So today's game, worth noting, first of all, for actually, you know what? No, here, let, let's do, why don't we do, let's do it this way, because this is going to fold in some Bulls talk as well, the Sixers Bulls. So why don't we do, let's talk about actually Brooklyn first, then we'll move then to we'll Philly, do, then and then we'll the, move the into Philly, okay. Philly, Chicago, yeah. Oh, so we're, yeah. We're, go, we're going to a disappointing, dark place right now to the Brooklyn Nets. They're 29 and 24. 4-11 and 11 since the last 15 and 60, down to 15th in net rating, barely, barely positive. And a lot of that is fueled by a huge drop-off defensively, which we thought was coming for a long time. They're 8th in offense, 22nd in defense, and 538's Raptor model has moved them all the way down to 45 wins, which will be tied with the Raptors for the 7th seed. Playoff odds, 79% Raptor, 58% ELO, and it has been, it's been absolutely brutal for them. They have had a lot of games where they're key players have been out you know not even just Kevin Durant but James Harden is missing time with this hand issue Kyrie played against the Nets or sorry played against the Nuggets no, no, sorry sorry it's it's the hamstring oh it's hamstring. it was a hand it was a hand briefly. now it's a hamstring thank you yeah so so he didn't play I think against Denver then he did play or no he played against the Kings and was terrible then he hasn't played the last two games and they got an MRI on the hamstring it showed t- tightness and weakness I'm guessing the MRI didn't show weakness but also feels like something where hey he might not come back and let's keep in mind too uh, Kyrie's been playing but these are supposed to be the good games right these are the ones that Kyrie is playing and they're just getting their ass kicked out on this west coast swing and so now if Harden's out and Kyrie can't play what the hell is that going to look like over these next few games and KD they did say that he's progressing normally but he's not going to play in the all-star game he clearly won't be back until after then they have have six more games before the all-star before all-star like and how how many of those those are home games three of them they play the Celtics they play the Celtics the Kings their their new their new demon their new demon team the Sacramento Kings and the Washington Wizards right before the all-star break that's the last game last game out and yeah well and we should talk more about their just their injuries too here because you know two of the big three I, I mean Harden it's just with the hamstring issues that he's had it just doesn't it seems like whatever it's going to be it's going to linger that's what it's been he he already because let's remember right he already tried to come back and he was terrible against the kings and then you've got kd out joe harris may need a second surgery uh, i think we talked about that already maybe we didn't but uh he doesn't he had an interview he's not sure how it's going to respond over the next week or two i think if it doesn't get better then he's gonna have to have a second surgery and then you're looking at his whole playoffs possibly being imperiled they've got nick claxton who is out with hamstring issue he's he suffered it five, mi- five minutes into the game against the jazz and then did not play against denver yeah they've got lamarcus out he was maybe supposed to return on this road trip with an ankle issue no he's actually been back 
in i'm sorry no he was he was not supposed to return he was going to miss the remainder of the trip and then but he was expected to be back before the break they desperately need his scoring so it's dayron sharp and blake griffin up front and then your power forwards are kessler edwards and james johnson and you know they got bruce brown and then it's patty mills like the only player that you would look at right now who before the season you're like this guy should be in a rotation who's actually playing for them other than the big three and two of the three those three are out is patty mills so they're going to probably be facing games going forward here with Patty Mills at home. Like they, and it's not like, what is the ninth seed projected for right now in 538? 43 wins. The Atlanta Hawks. Yeah. So they could be, and that's actually a little bit lower than I expected, but they could be about 500 going into the break at, at this rate. I mean, I could see them going one in five. Sure. Here. And, you know, Kyrie, Kyrie honestly has never been able to carry a team offensively on his own. Like he's been much better next to a second or even a third co-star because he he is a great great scorer but he doesn't create a ton for his teammates he doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim like he's doing more kind of iso scoring which is not necessarily bending the defense i always wish he could actually be a little bit better of a distributor particularly and more of a pick and roll player he's just more comfortable in isolation nonetheless so uh, we've gone through uh, all this but steve nash has said he has talked to james harden james harden says he wants to be here Steve Nash was directly asked if they were trading hard. He said they weren't going to. He was asked again, can we assume that James Harden won't be traded before the deadline? And Steve Nash said, yes, that is correct. So nonetheless, there's all this noise that from Shams that the Nets would actually consider maybe moving Harden. There's been pushback on that, obviously, since then. This is, I mean, that's the key report, right? Like, obviously, the Sixers would love to trade for him. Even if there's this idea that Harden might want to come there, you don't get anywhere until it's like, oh, the Nets would actually consider this. There is a report now that the Nets would consider this. They have pushed back on that publicly and put their names to it. But hey, come on. We got to fucking talk about this anyway, right? James Harden for Ben Simmons. What say you? I've thought about it a fair amount. And I, so the, first of all, there's all this complicated personal stuff, which we can't necessarily nail down because the players aren't going to say everything publicly. You know, you do you want to frustrate Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or anything like this? But I am conceptually on board with trading James Harden for for a few different reasons. I'm, and I'm not saying, I'm not getting into the Simmons of it all just yet. I think Harden's game is not going to age particularly well. I think we have already seen the limitations of, of how, how it could be defensively and offensively if he's not creating as many advantages. He's looked much better since the challenging start of start to the year. But also that he, you know, you create this three-headed monster where all three guys are really good offensively and you can, teams just don't have a way to counter it. I, I think there's still definitely merit to that idea. But once one of them takes a step back physically, it becomes an issue. And Harden has enough left with the Nets that he's going to sign a, you know, he can get a long-term deal. However it happens, it could be an opt-in and extension. It could be an opt-out. It could be a couple different mechanisms. But I don't think these next couple of years are going to be good enough. And so I I think that pulling the ripcord with a hardened deal is a, it's it's a worthy thing to consider. The challenge for me of a then a hardened for Simmons deal is that there are parts of this that actually Simmons makes you know makes some sense. Like the age part of it, having somebody who's a little bit younger who can theoretically fill in some of the gaps for what they do. That all that all makes some sense. And I, I think that Simmons, his versatility defensively would actually be a wonderful fit for Brooklyn. Defensively, they could run different schemes, but also he can take on harder assignments. The challenge is, do, are KD and Kyrie good enough to handle a much less 
a, a much less healthy offensive ecosystem. Because the problem is Ben Simmons is at his best offensively when the ball's in his hands, because when it's not in his hands, other teams know that they don't have to guard him very much. And you don't... Yeah. Want- or unless it's like the fourth quarter of a playoff game or the second round of the playoffs, sure. in which case he'll just stand along the baseline. Stand along the baseline. And so do the, the reason I wouldn't do that deal as Brooklyn is... I think he he instead of it being that he diminishes slightly diminishes the strength and really fortifies the weakness I think that he diminishes that strength more severely because of the specific weaknesses in his game. And that is a big problem with them because they're not going to, he makes them better defensively, but they're not going to beat teams defensively in the first place. And I think they get a lot easier to defend. Uh, why couldn't they beat teams defensively? If they had him and KD at the three and the four, then Kyrie, playing- you could fix it. So Kyrie was your one bad defender. Like you could, you could who, do a lot of the, switching. So, so then are you going to play, are you going to play Bruce Brown? Like you're, if you're playing good enough, defenders to make that true you're not going to have you're going to have two good offensive players and well you would just have to get like a normal decent two guard at that point like someone who could shoot a little bit and defend pretty well but i think that's we just don't know what the variables here are right i mean if you're just saying hey straight up ben simmons for james harden that's it the philly will have to throw in a little more matching salary that's about it it nothing great you know it's danny green or something although danny green hey he could actually help a little bit not in more than about 20 25 minutes a game but still if you're getting back some picks there's a there's a report out of philly a very very local report shall we say that the sixers are scoffing at the idea that they would give up anything other than ben simmons for james harden like okay but if you could get i mean obviously no way the sixers would give up maxi in this deal with the way he's played or if you you know could you get matisse thibel and eh, you know things get a little bit dicey there although you could still say hey kevin durant and kyrie irving are the two most resilient mid-range scorers and so having little spacing with those guys out there is you can deal with that better and still have a decent enough offense maybe that's a a thought and that they can kind of deal with ben simmons's issues or you know ben simmons can be the role man as well but ben simmons is tough for team building as is james harden particularly defensively but you would love to if you're gonna have ben simmons then you kind of need that stretch five as well are they get i want to know what they're getting back that they can fill out the team around simmons with you know maybe they could get back like jared allen and uh karis lavert and maybe like three picks and two swaps for uh something like that if they trade Harden, anyway. Yeah, so I, I mean, this will be something to relitigate whenever the Harden Nets era ends of whether that was the right trade to make or not. I think that they have a higher upside as a team with all of those three guys together. However, we don't know what's happening with Kyrie after this year. The further we go, the less likely it seems that he's going to either get the shot or that he's going to be eligible in any way to play in home games. Uh, Wob made this point that as of right now, the Nets would be the seventh seed, meaning they would have both games at home in the play-in, neither of which Kyrie would be oh, eligible. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that'd be pretty hilarious. Are they, getting, are they going to tank all the way to the tenth seed <laughs> at this point? oh man oh so and yeah i i had a thought in this process that i don't want to i don't want to dive down this rabbit hole were it not for the personal relationships involved most specifically Harden with Daryl Morey and with Tad Brown. Kyrie on the Sixers, 
I think actually makes more sense, not only because it solves some of the vaccination issues, but also because Kyrie is put in a better chance to succeed there. And then you put Simmons in a in a different ecosystem, you know, Simmons, Harden and KD as opposed to Simmons, Harden, Simmons, KD, Kyrie. But it's never going to happen. Like that's not that like that framework. Like I actually think you can make you can make a more plausible deal for both teams if it were Simmons and Kyrie than Simmons and Harden were it not for everything else. Yeah, and I do actually like the fit of Harden with Embiid on the offensive end. I think some people have been skeptical of it, but James Harden, his the biggest thing that's declined over the last couple of years is his isolation ability. And so, but you're not going to switch a pick and roll with him and Embiid. And as we'll talk about in this Chicago game, Embiid is starting to play some like Jokic, where you run the pick and roll. He's not necessarily rolling to the basket to dunk it, although I think he probably could do a little of that with, with Harden. They just haven't really had like the good passer to set him up in that way. But the ball handler just turns the corner, throws it back to him at the top of the circle, and he can go into his jab step drive game from there with a guy, a traditional center, closing him out and potentially worrying about flying by or, or you know he's at just a little bit of an advantage same way as Jokic can be when he's really playing well with Murray and Harden he's gotten a little bit better at taking some catch and shoots this year I think that's something he'll continue to work on I, I'm not worried about that aspect he's not going to cut off the ball that's okay uh defensively I do wonder because you're going to try and hide Harden but and maybe you'll switch one through four with Harden but you're certainly not going to switch with Embiid out on the floor probably like he is going to have to get through some kind of a screen at some point in his career you're also worried a little bit about the health and these recurring hamstring issues I, I mean it's convenient that no one seems worried about Ben Simmons issues anymore right like <laughs> I mean, both of these guys should be kind of distressed assets where Harden you're going to have to pay him this 50 million a year probably after this although eh, we'll see if that actually happens let's see how the rest of the year turns out for him he may be ruining the fact that he didn't take that huge extension when the Nets offered it but that's your operating assumption right now even though he doesn't really have the leverage of going somewhere else at this point and but Harden if he's going to be like pouting or he's going to be injured or something like yeah you'd probably rather have Ben Simmons but hey let's not forget Ben Simmons has all these issues and oh my god what if you actually had Ben Simmons had to play for another team in Philly in the playoffs like how would he ever handle that mentally there there are Benson is a very distressed asset. Like we've just kind of forgotten about that conveniently because he's been out of sight, out of mind. So, all right, let, let's just finish up here. Let's because we take a position on this show. What is the trade as the Brooklyn Nets that you would accept to exchange James Harden for Benson? I would have to get back another another player, or I guess you could say an asset that could turn into a player that I think could be in my closing five. So that would be Curry or Maxi. I mean, there's no way to make it Tobias Harris trade. So, so Max. Maxi and Simmons for Harden you you would do that as the Nets yeah I would I mean it's tough too as the Nets because if Harden really is saying to them no I don't want to be traded right now that's really tough to trade him but he also hasn't committed right I mean to me if I'm the Nets I'm like okay oh you want to be here well then you can't you're not going to make any more money by waiting until the summer so let's extend why are you not extending right now if you actually really do want to be here and that's very you don't because as a reminder well so well the the extension in season is actually kind of because so you're saying he would have to because he would have to opt out to extend well well yeah i mean he could get the five years or the most lucrative would be opting in and then doing a four-year extension off of that right at the the start of the year right so so i mean there are there he can get one more year you're right about that so so there is a financial reason i sorry that that was a, a screw up but still i 
I mean, maybe saying I, I will take that extension. I, I, this is so like the, the fact that this has become part of this has made this even more intractable. I, I mean, I think as the Brooklyn Nets, if I could get Ben Simmons and two first round picks that are close enough that I could trade. Yeah, that would be would that would be another it. way to do it. Sure. Because oh, what I meant by it was like a player who can be your closing five or who you could turn into two first round picks. You could turn yeah. that into a good player. Yeah. And maybe, you know, Furkan Korkmaz could help me as well. You know, maybe he would be the last guy. You could get Korkmaz and, and Green. I mean, the other thing too is you would want to, you'd save some luxury tax money on this deal in theory. And at least, hey, Ben Simmons, at least going forward, he's making 35 million for the next couple of years. And Harden, if he's making 50, that, that factors into this. Like, yes, they're on max contract but they are very different maxes i just but it's still like without knowing james harden's situation no idea on Kyrie's situation like how the fuck you make this determination now if harden says he doesn't want to be there anymore then it gets a lot easier right but then they, then you also reduce your leverage and then philly is like okay we'll just trade you ben simmons for harden straight up we're not giving you anything else he said he's going to be there anymore. all right that's probably enough on this but let's uh, get to this game against the bulls today for philly and sadly looking like we're probably not going to get through all 15 teams we'll have to save some of those for tomorrow but because I, my podcast recording efficiency begins to decline precipitously after two straight hours with no matisse thibel philly really really struggled to guard demar Derozan, who had 40 on 18 to 30 from the field at one point he has had 40 points on 14 to 20 they also were following him on jumpers I mean, the main matchup was tobias harris and he's just not really they wanted to have someone with more size he's just not capable of doing that i thought that philly's defense against DeRozan was poor even accounting for the fact that they had no one who could deal with him one-on-one and yes DeRozan is difficult to deal with but because you when he's really on fire from the mid-range and that's you don't have anyone who can guard him in that area he's gonna make a lot of shots but I thought they could have done more particularly when he was playing with some of these difficult Bulls bench lineups like you know Matt Thomas can shoot okay maybe you don't want to double off of him Mr. 99% but then it was like Javante Green Tony Bradley Malcolm Hill like when Vooch was out of the game in particular like, I thought they should have just been doing the straight double team of DeRozan when he got the ball and just force it out of his hands and make the other guys beat they had no playmakers out there and only one other shooter and instead they did and they still let themselves kind of get picked apart by DeRozan and that kept it close but Joel was unbelievable in this one and so was their three-point shooting they finished 12 out of 24 at one point they were 10 out of 16 early in the third uh, Vucevic ended up with five fouls at the end Joel had 40 himself and he had just the entire package working like the fact that he now is starting to make that mid-ranger again the way he did last year and he looks to maybe even be a little bit quicker than he was last year his skill level just what he can do facing up if you put your arm out he's going to go through you and draw fouls as well so you really can't be physical with him he can face up get it and pick and pop and attack on the move and because their three-point shooters were hitting shots they really couldn't just double team him he had a couple of nice assists including one uh, where harris was sneaking on the baseline as he was driving he shoveled it to him and harris poked it right on javante green's head which is a very unexpected dunk so the that's the other thing that's probably the biggest increase for joel this year is his passing and ability to make plays on the move so he's just a major major problem and this Bulls team just couldn't deal with him in the slightest. So the shot chart is out there. Embiid, 7 of 8 in the restricted area, and you could throw in many of his 10 of 11 free throws generated in that area. 2 of 5 from floater range, 3 of 6 from mid-range, 2 of 4 from 3. 
Also, important context for this one, Zach Levine has missed now two straight with mid-back spasms. And Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to who was actually playing minutes for the Bulls in this game right. when we get to them. Sure, I, I guess that that's a fair way to do it. I guess we could, we could save that, and we'll talk about their stats, and then we'll do that. So let's, let's, so then any other uh, specific Sixers stuff that you want to get to before we do the Bulls stats? Yeah, I mean, the story of this game was interesting. Sixers were kind of you know up 10 most of the way. They start the fourth with a 9-0 run to go up. 17 finishing a run at the end of the third which was 13-0 the Bulls had cut it to four when DeRozan was going off at the end of the third then they start off 13-0 go up 17 you think the game is over and then immediately Billy Donovan calls timeout puts Nikola Vucevic back in and the Bulls go on their own 13-0 run uh aided by George Niang questionable flagrant fouls a four-point play and then Joel comes back in and immediately restores order and he was just killing the five foul addled Vucevic at the end uh Vooch did actually have some pretty decent success attacking him when DeRozan was out of the game in the third. He was actually like facing up against them. They ran the same play over and over again. It was just a cross screen to get Vooch a post up, facing up, and then he would go into the lane. Embiid fouled him a couple of times. Vucevic faked him out uh, on an up fake a couple of times and got into a hook shot. And you, you know you're not playing great defense when Nikola Vucevic is getting to the foul line. Um, so Joel's actually gotten lit up by some other centers. Like Mo Bamba had, Joel had like 50 in 28 minutes or whatever it was, but Bamba had 32 in that game. Like he, he's had some moments where he's gotten lit up by guys that he has the physical tools to contain a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Joel was just unstoppable down the end. And he's now has 20 straight games of 25 or more points. And my last Sixers note here, Abdel Nadi was leading the charge, although Kate Scott was certainly enabling him. Just so much complaining about the refs in this game from the Sixers broadcast crew. And again, you know that I hate this stuff. The refs are not biased against your team. You know, and it was getting to the point where I was, I can't believe they're not like he was. It, they probably mentioned the refereeing, I would say, 15 times over about a 15 minutes of game time period at the end of the third and then through the fourth. And it's just, it kills me because not only is it annoying, not only is it too partisan, not only is it inaccurate, not only does it convince uh, fans of the team that the refs are biased against them, which is ridiculous, but then it's also, you're just wasting air, right? Someone made a play and scored or didn't score. Why don't you tell us what happened, what play they ran? Give us something rather than just useless complaining about the refs. And they're obviously not the only broadcast crew that does it. No, but I, I I, it was, I've, ri- I've yeah. written about it at one point in the past. Yeah, but I would honestly, I would say this is worse than it's ever I've ever heard the Warriors crew be. Um, and you know, Bob Bob is very consistent, but he'll get in there, you know, three or four times a game. This was just, I would say, like probably one third of possessions at one point were taken up by their sole analysis was complaining about the refereeing touch falls not being called the same way on the other end all this crap let's get to the bulls now though chicago is 33 and 20 on the season and 7 and 10 since the last 1560 we'll get into some context there they're 12th in net rating plus 1.7 fourth in offense 19th in defense there was a time that we were you know gushing over over chicago's overall defense um and of course there's context but they're also projected now for 47 wins which would be fourth in the eastern conference but as we mentioned there are a lot of teams right in that vicinity 89% chance of making the playoffs for ELO 86% or sorry 89 Raptor 86 ELO and um let's do we do have some you let's start with your Bulls notes on this game and then we can get to everything else yeah for sure and it just starts with who's actually playing minutes for the Bulls right now 
just oh boy. To, to remind everyone. Yeah. So the long term has been out. Yeah. The yeah. long term absences. I would yeah. say that group includes Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, Patrick Williams, presumably, and Derek Jones Jr. Now we've talked about all those at length in the past. So you add yeah. so, on. So that's basically both of your point guards and both of your fours. Also, uh, I, I guess the, the only one left is uh, Javante Green. I guess. Also, Green, your Green was ahead of Jones. Your three best defensive players are three of your four. I would have you could depending on how you want to classify some things. And so on top of that, in the in the last couple or in the, the last little bit, Zach Levine's missed the last two due to these mid back spasms, and then Kobe White was questionable. He didn't play because of an adductor strain on Friday, and then he also didn't play on Sunday. So not only were they out there two like point guard size, their two primary point guard size, there out the backup who would have replaced those players and that's why so much was on demar Derozan's shoulders yeah and he as we mentioned he's one of the more resilient scorers in the nba so here's your rotation you know you got io DeSumo starting at the two i mean one way of putting you have DeSumo, javante green and troy brown starting however you want to define the positions but then yeah, troy brown man he is he's gotten lit up defensively i, I watched uh, some of his lowlights as i was watching that levert 42 point game he was definitely a, a big part of that one um yeah so uh, troy brown jr you know there's hope that he could maybe be a starting quality player he's really fallen off and then so that, that's the starters then coming off the bench you got mckinney he only played three minutes not sure if he got hurt uh, what happened there uh malcolm hill tony bradley and matt thomas who ended up playing 34 minutes in this one is basically their only shooter he was one out of seven from three so and they were seven to 26 overall in this game and they really they derozan played 41 minutes and he and vooch was pretty decent uh, although he was because he actually got to the foul line for once but yeah i mean and, and i was hoping to see a little bit more from io offensively he's only three out of eight in this one I mean, he had a 14 assist game earlier this week and he had a seven assist game here but yeah yeah but it, but even then i mean if you're just you're counting guys up you've got two guys available for this game and then maybe tony bradley was your backup center three guys available derozan vooch and then maybe tony bradley that you would have thought were anything higher than fringe guys at the start of this season like Desumu was the 38th pick so i don't think anyone was counting on him he's been good obviously but when you just look at what the pedigree of these guys was before the start of the season and they are the fact that they're even competitive in this game against one of the best in the east was pretty impressive but it ended up being too much Embiid in the end let me see if i had anything else on this one i thought javante green also you know i was a little disappointed in his one-on-one defense he was also one of these guys got really hurt by lavert in the 42 point game on friday and then thought tobias harris really had his way with him in this game including that dunk i mentioned which was off ball but a lot of the on ball stuff it is harder because green is actually pretty sure he's like six five and he's not as strong as harris and when harris runs pick and roll with Embiid, vucevic he's wanting to cheat to get back to Embiid, so Embiid can't just start operating with him with nobody in front of him and but then harris is able to kind of overwhelm green a little bit physically without much help behind him but yeah i, I thought green was pretty good defensively early in the season i haven't liked what i've seen from the last two games in the role that he's expected as being their best perimeter defender a couple other just as we close out kind of full season notes for the bulls when levine DeRozan and Vooch have played together plus 8.9 net rating and about 1500 possessions that's fantastic fueled by their offense but also better defense than we anticipated 117 offensive rating 
And the Bulls, with their 33-20 and 20 record, they are outperforming their cleaning the glass point differential by the most in the NBA, plus 3.8 win, wins so far this year. That is, as we've talked about a couple moments in time, fueled by their clutch performance, plus 15 net rating. I don't, that's before today's game. I can't remember the timing of whether this actually counted as clutch time. And they're 17-10 and 10 in those games. But I wanted to note that that 15 net rating, it's fantastic. It's actually sixth in the NBA. And we're, this isn't the Sun section, but the Sun, are plus 45 in clutch situations this year, which is hilarious. And DeMar DeRozan has the highest clutch shooting percentage of anybody with a usage rate over 30 in that time period, 67% on 34 usage. And again, to note a Suns thing, Devin Booker doesn't qualify because he's above, he's below 30 usage, but he has 75% true shooting in clutch situations this year. Yeah, and Chris Paul is like 68%. Yeah, it's astonishing. That's how you get to having a a plus 45 net rating clutch. Sure, and um, as I was talking about DeRozan having the best true shooting of anybody over 30 usage, just to complete it, because I looked at the other side of the table, the players with the lowest clutch true shooting with the usage rate that high, Jimmy Butler at 40.5%, then Gar. Garland, then Karis LeVert, then Steph Curry. Very, very interesting. These are yeah, small the... These are small sample sizes. You don't want to go too much. And even the players, remember Terry Rozier had that insane clutch, clutch shooting last year. But, hmm, hmm, hmm. So since we've got some teams that we've done some analysis on, let's save them until tomorrow and talk about the teams that we watch games for sure. uh, over the weekend. The first, so we're going to skip over the magic for now, but to, to tease it, we're going to talk about uh, their bigs. Let's get to the New York Knickerbockers. What are their fundamentals? The Knicks are 24 and 29 on the season, five and eight since the last 15 and 60. Barely below water in net rating, negative 0.5, which is an improvement from where they were. 21st in offense, 14th in defense. And their 36 wins project for 12th in the Eastern Conference per the Raptor model. 3% chance of making the playoffs on Raptor, 7% on ELO. And I wanted to start with kind of a big picture concept with them. As we're recording this, the Knicks are a game and a half behind the Hawks for the 10th spot. But Atlanta's won eight of their last 10, and I feel they are the superior team. I'm guessing you feel the same. Yeah, The what is the what are the projections for the Knicks and the Hawks? 40, so 43 wins for Atlanta, uh, 36 wins for New York. But the, but they don't, the, yeah. but the I Hawks, mean, so that's the a Hawks huge, that's a the seven Hornets game are projected as huge. the 10th seed because they, the, the right. model thinks that the Hawks will eventually surpass Charlotte. Right. But even Charlotte is projected five ahead. For, yeah. So, and, and then Washington is kind of projected to, in the mid to, to high 30s as well. So that's your 11th and 12th. It hasn't happened yet. Oh, 24 and 29 now for the next, you know, Washington has, has been kind of in free fall a little bit too. I when not just subjectively, I would say that the Knicks and the Wizards are the worst of that group kind of fighting for the play-in. And it seems like the projection systems agree and see there being some stratification with a, a line below 10 with the, the Hornets being 10 right now. So that's just something to keep in note uh, overall uh, for these guys. Uh, anything interesting in terms of the work that you did on the Knicks before we talk about that crazy game against the Lakers? A couple of things. I wanted to look at how the Knicks defense has been after Kemba got pulled from the rotation the first time, which was on November 27th. And and since then, the Knicks are 12th in defensive rating. Remember, they're 14th for the full season. And the profile of like what they're doing well, if you just narrow the field at that time, is pretty similar to last year, getting a lot of defensive rebounds, lower opponent effective.
effective field goal percentage, not forcing a ton of turnovers, middle of the road and fouling. There is some opponent shooting luck in their overall numbers during the time, but not a ton. Not as crazy, actually, as their Jedi mind trick defense last year, where they were giving up a ton of threes and teams were making them an extremely low rate. And then I looked at, just briefly, well, how has it been when Randall and RJ Barrett are playing together with and without Kemba? And there is a massive difference in terms of net rating. Negative 12.7 with Kemba on and plus 0.4 with Kemba off. However, most of that difference is actually on the is actually on the offensive end, not on the defensive end. They've just played better offensively during those minutes. So the I I, I don't think that the story of the season, even though some of you know things got better once they reshuffled things, making Kemba the scapegoat for their defensive issues, I think that's not fair. And then on that note of unfair scapegoats, I thought we were going to see a bigger disparity, like that they've been better when Nerlens Noel has been available. I think that's an underrated part of their season, even without even considering this stat. But the Knicks defense. 111.9 defensive rating when Nerlens Noel is on the floor. 109.7, so that's superior when he's off. So it's interesting. Yeah, and obviously we have to dive into a little bit more deeply of course. in terms of the shooting luck and stuff to to say that they're better or worse uh, with him on the floor. Anything else you want to talk about, or should we talk about this crazy game against the Lakers? Which we'll talk a little bit of Lakers in this too. How could we not uh, after this? But uh, I, I think I think we can get to we can we can focus more on, on this. Uh, the other you know it's a little bit of context for the Knicks but so the Knicks started this game off absolutely on fire they had 42 29 after the first they led it 71 to 56 at halftime and then it was a 31 to 13 third quarter that led to them actually having to do a wild comeback Lakers led by six with about five minutes remaining when one Russell Westbrook returned to the game just some observations from the meat of the game Malik Monk had 18 points in in the third after having only four in the first half Anthony Davis was awesome with 28 points 13 of 19 from the field they basically didn't play another big other than three minutes for DeAndre Jordan for the Knicks RJ Barrett had 36 points 13 of 28 from the field four of 10 from three five assists 55 zero minutes cool. he did not come out of the game in the second half and then played the overtime as well so he basically played i don't know like 41 straight minutes something like that obviously with halftime in between so uh, tibbs certainly likes to ride barrett when he's going well julius randall had a really nice first half offensively and he also uh, finished up with 32 points but I thought, and I've continued to note this, that his defense really, he provides very, very little resistance. Yeah, that, I thought he had, yeah, go ahead. We talked about that in the uh, the live show that we did on the Knicks a couple weeks ago, that he's just, it's not as much resistance, and then he's also not providing as much as a help defender either, I would say this year. Yeah, and you know, his best attribute, to the extent he has one defensively, is his mobility on the perimeter, but he's generally not guarding guys where that comes in. Barrett, we should talk about how it was that he, he was able to get to his 36 points got to the rim for six out of ten and then three of six in the paint so he made nine buckets in the paint also got to the foul line decently three of nine on above the break threes he still doesn't look as comfortable on the move although he did hit a big one late as we'll get to to tie it right at the end the Knicks offense really struggled in the second half the Lakers were switching everything and the Knicks didn't really have anything to beat them one-on-one at one point, Randall did slip a screen and get a nice back 
back cut for a, a finish. I thought Randall also made some nice plays on the offensive glass to, to get a couple extra possessions late. But there are a lot of contested threes that they were taking. Uh, Barrett still was really effective getting to his left hand, though. He had this beautiful floater over AD uh, off the glass. Uh, we did not see very much Quinton Grimes, Obi Toppin. They were going with Alec Burks at point guard in the second unit in the fourth with Grimes, Barrett, Toppin, and Noel. But pretty quickly, they went back to Julius Randle. And uh, Mitchell Robinson actually was the guy closing it out at center for the Knicks. So they're down four with a minute left after this Lakers comeback. Monk had, had absolutely killed them. I thought they didn't do a good enough job down the stretch, even though they did make the comeback of not guarding Westbrook. They actually had Robinson on Westbrook at one point, but, uh, and Russ did take one shot in the left corner, which was hilarious because the crowd was telling him not to shoot it, but it was pretty late clock. He kind of had to, and Mike Breen even noticed that. And Westbrook finished one of 10, 0 of three from three, three of seventh in the line, six assists, four turnovers, negative 15 at five points. I mean, that's just about, and, and did it in 29 minutes, but they did put him back in for the end. And that proved to be a mistake because he missed a couple of huge free throws down the end. Lakers were only four out of 10 at the foul line in the fourth quarter. And they decided to trap Russell Westbrook after Fournier hit a three to cut it to four with 105 left. Knicks were down seven with 117 remaining. So should have just been totally out of it. Uh, they try to trap Westbrook in the backcourt. Smart move, I think, but then they end up giving an intentional foul. And Mark Jackson was killing him. And I was kind of like, hey, down four, 58 seconds left. I kind of like this foul on a bad free throw shooter. He misses both of them. And then the Knicks come down, push it up. Burks gets a pretty decent look at an open three with 52 seconds left and misses it. And you're like, all right, well, that's got to clearly be it now. And oh, then no. they foul Ariza. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. <laughs> they foul Ariza. Another guy who, you know, is closing the game out here for the Lakers. He's been in and out of the group. We talked before about how the Lakers are so limited in terms of the non-AD and LeBron guys. LeBron, we didn't even mention that. LeBron was back and looked unbelievable in this game from that knee swelling, which is a great sign for the Lakers. So Ariza makes one out of two. Again, fouling a guy like that, down four, you just missed. Like, the announcers were like, yeah, play defense with 47 seconds left. I'm like, no, that's a terrible idea. You you want to get the ball back? Maximize, maximize the number left. of possessions you can get. Right, yeah, 23 seconds left, down four. No, give me a chance to follow Ariza now with more time. Like, I think he's probably going to make one out of two, which he did. So you're down five. Then, after the missed free throw, RJ Barrett pushes it down in three seconds and dunks all over the entire Lakers team. Blew by Russell Westbrook, by the way. Uh, and then there actually was a technical foul on the inbound. LeBron tried to get it in. Barrett said afterwards that he thought maybe LeBron like threw it into him as he was starting to run back to get the delay a game. The Knicks had already gotten a delay a game earlier, and so it was a technical. But Malik Monk missed the technical free throw. Better decision than having Russell Westbrook take a technical free throw, which they did earlier in the week. Oh, boy. Uh and so then at this point, it's a three-point game. 40 seconds to go. And I thought, yeah, 40 seconds to go. And so Russell Westbrook had not been touching the ball at all. He'd been, if he brought the ball up, he immediately just gave it to somebody at the elbow and then went and stood in the opposite corner. And they tried to run sort of some sort of LeBron or AD action. A lot of those worked. That's where I was being critical of Robinson for not taking up enough space in the middle and forcing them to send it to Russ. So they do that a AD handoff to LeBron late in the clock. And Evan Fournier, I think probably Tom Thibodeau just told him to do 
this evan fournier comes all the way over from the weak side basically to the right wing and just totally brings a third man into this action and blows it up so they have to give it up to monk but he still had a guy on him and he has to take a really difficult step back so that was that was very nice defense by the knicks then off that miss Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis both go for the offensive rebound. Davis got like hit in the stomach or something. It's one of these things where he just falls down and looks like he's never going to get up again. And Westbrook, though, was still on his feet. He went for the offensive rebound. Great decision to do that up three and then just never got back. And as a result, the Knicks push it up. They got all kinds of time. Barrett is behind the play. They penetrate into the lane. And even with the amount of time required for someone who was standing right next to Russell Westbrook when he got the rebound, by the way, to get into the lane and then pass it back to RJ Barrett at the three-point line. By the way, you might want to be guarding the three-point line. When you're up by three, three with 10 seconds to go. Yeah. And so Westbrook just never got back into the play. Like as Barrett is shooting it, you see him jogging back in behind whoever the big man was about Robinson going to the defensive glass and he just didn't run he didn't run back and you know Jay Michael was talking about this earlier and I I got in a discussion with him about on Twitter of just people always say and we've said this before Russell Westbrook oh but you can never criticize him for not playing hard enough right like he's just such a competitor he plays hard no he plays hard when he's going for a rebound and when he has the ball he does not play hard other than that he's not in a stance he doesn't sprint the floor on defense he doesn't even really sprint the floor on offense that much when he doesn't have the ball he doesn't fight really to get through screens he doesn't even fight that much in the post anymore either which he used to at least he'd take it personally if guys try to post him up he doesn't play that hard and he doesn't play that well and so after that Frank so oh yeah the, then the Lakers came back they actually ran a pick and roll and LeBron missed a three as the Knicks like kind of miscommunicated with Robinson and drop covers LeBron got a very good look Alec Burks gets the defensive rebound with probably about 1.5 left nobody calls him out the Knicks actually had a timeout and nobody called a timeout instead Burks just goes and throws it down to the other end they were listed as having a timeout at least on the the broadcast so I assume that was correct they had, only, they had only that, called one in yeah. the last two minutes so I mean I would think yeah. that you were right right yeah unless that was the last one which and again it wasn't indicated on the broadcast so my thought is that they're so used to not having any timeouts right at the end <laughs> of the game under Tom Thibodeau <laughs> that they just didn't know how to react when they actually did have one but somebody the coaching staff a player Burks himself you got to know that the very first thing you do when you get a rebound in that situation if you have a timeout is to call one so either the coaching staff didn't remind them that they had one who knows what it was but you have to the very moment you get two hands on the ball either you or someone on the team has to call timeout in that situation with you're under two seconds to go like nothing they there was eight points one seconds left when the possession started there's no way under any circumstances that you're gonna have time to push the ball up and score like you need to call that timeout advance the ball and give yourself a chance they didn't so they could have had a chance with like 1.5 to get a, a shot to win it they didn't take it and then they just got killed in the overtime they got outscored uh 11 to 5 um, yeah and that was with russ being taken out of the game frank vogel was asked about it afterwards by jovan buha and again i mean it's interesting you know vogel is like hey you know it's not bad like we're always gonna play the guys that give us the best chance to win the game uh you know russ was struggling offensively and defensively russ to his credit asked about it, was like hey we won like the last time it happened against indiana we didn't win so that was more disturbing again what the hell is russ gonna say especially because he doesn't want to get traded away from la but they put in taylor horton tucker tellingly taylor horton tucker was yeah i think he was like 0 for 5 when he got put back in the game and 
And but I thought it was also interesting that Horton Tucker did score in the overtime, setting a screen for LeBron James and slipping to the basket while being guarded by Evan Fournier, which Russell Westbrook does not want to set a screen for LeBron James and slip to the basket. He just doesn't do that for whatever reason. There was one game where he did it like three or four times and everyone was celebrating it. And we basically haven't seen it at all. So let's get to the Milwaukee Bucks. They are 33 and 21 on the season, seven and five since the last 1560. Fifth in net rating, plus 4.5 is great. Sixth in offense, eighth in defense, one of the teams that's top 10 in both now. They project by the Raptor model to tie with the 76ers for the second seed in the Eastern Conference. And they're, of course, going to make the playoffs. On those kind of core group things, Giannis, Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton playing together, plus 11.7 net rating in 829 possessions. Phenomenal offensively and yeah, pretty that, good that's gone up quite a bit because i think and or maybe the people who are doing this stat are looking at nba.com rather than cleaning the glass which filters out garbage time but uh, people have been tossing around the seven number uh, although uh, it probably went up by like three points just from this game so <laughs> Uh, and again, this Portland starting lineup was CJ McCollum, Anthony Simons, Tony Snell, CJ LB, and Yusuf Nurkic. Yusuf Nurkic did have a massive dunk on Giannis's head, but uh, that was about the only laugh he would have as he was negative 36 in 25 minutes. Um, so, and the guys in the trade were available at least from Portland, or I should say Justice Winslow was. Interestingly, Eric Bledsoe, I think it was Achilles soreness that he's listed at. Law Murray, who covers the Clippers, pointed out that this is Eric Bledsoe's first time being on the injury report for anything. So the fact that he was not available, that kind of makes me think at minimum, he's going to kind of be on ice. I mean, it's going to be hard for him to be traded because he was aggregated, but he's probably going to be on ice at least until after the deadline. And then it seems like a buyout would be forthcoming there potentially. And that's why they're just going to not bother to play him. That seems mutually beneficial. Oh. Um, but again, this is the buck section. So we can, well, we can so, talk and, about what happened. And an important update on that. I pulled the Drew Chris Giannis stat before that Blazers game. It's now up to plus 14.3. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, and they kicked the shit out of us. 137-108, and uh, it was, they scored 34, 36, and 37 points in the first three quarters and led by more than 30 after three and it was basically 30 midway through the third after they led by 16 points at halftime the beginning was pretty interesting in a number of ways though Giannis 29 points in only 25 minutes 7 to 12 field goals 4 7 from 3 11 to 15 free throw 6 assists the first three shots that he took from three he made all three of them with Nurkic was the guy guarding him most of the time nobody even in remotely the same zip code they were just like no we're just gonna let him shoot it he either like walked into it lazily or it was a catch and shoot he drained all three of it i was hoping that we would see the answer to how many threes it would take for him to have to make before he would actually get guarded out there but they kind of went away from that afterwards and he as i mentioned he did finish four out of seven they had no answers for him in, in transition or anywhere else i mean it was basically nurkic was the only guy even remotely capable of guarding their backup center is trendon watford right now for the blazers and bobby portis went completely batshit crazy himself 30 points in 24 minutes six of eight from three also had five assists interesting and uh, he was able to get into the post against some smaller players he deserves a lot of credit for his ability to actually go right shoulder every once in a while in the post against smaller guys instead of going to that hook over his left shoulder every time which was all he basically had when he was a, a bull they also were switching basically everything even on anthony simons i think the thinking was you know 
no reason to put two on the ball here and pick and roll let's just switch Bobby Portis on Anthony Simons if that's what we have to do and if Anthony Simons wants to gun some threes off the dribble we'll let him with a decent contest Simons ended up five out of 13 from three in 28 minutes but the the idea is and this is the idea as well when they put two on the ball when Portis is in pick and roll that Giannis is still there behind sure him most of the time and so they they can get away with that they've got help behind him and I thought Portis maybe could have been a little bit more aggressive trying to force guys to drive the Blazers got a fair number of open threes and just couldn't make them they were 14 out of 45 on the night CJ was one out of eight but that Macklemore got up 12 but it was one of those things of course where uh Milwaukee was so good offensively that it, it didn't really end up mattering in the end uh trying to think of what else to talk about here from this one Greg Monroe playing 15 minutes because of how much garbage time there was yeah he's back with the Milwaukee Bucks the moose is loose the 10 day yeah after the uh, and truthfully i think demarcus gave them more than monroe demarcus isn't great defensively but he still gives you more than than monroe he, demarcus gives you a little shooting range as well which is nice to have out there with the honest so i think he's a better fit now demarcus ended up in denver I, his 10 day must have just expired right i don't even know whether he's still there or not at point um because he suffered like a foot injury in those first couple of games De- demarcus played he played on sunday so he's still oh, there all right well i guess he's still there i just didn't hear that he was getting another 10 day I'm pretty sure it's been 10 days so yeah the bucks just completely throttled him in this one and th- there were some moments where i thought the bucks individual defense wasn't amazing they ended up allowing the blazers to shoot 68 percent from two although a lot of that was in a meaningless 33 point fourth quarter cj had a couple of nice moves uh, on Giannis beating him one-on-one i thought grace and allen didn't have some great moments defensively dante divincenzo they were switching everything like his best defensive skill is getting over screens we didn't really get to see that too much and we didn't really see divincenzo on the ball very much either during the competitive portion of the game he's had a pretty rough return statistically and just doesn't seem like that much noise around him potentially getting moved either but i'd be interested to know if if a team valued him i certainly would want to make that move as the bucks Although I still think when it's said and done that DiVincenzo will be ahead of Grayson Allen in the playoffs, it may take some time for Allen to get abused defensively for that to happen. But that's kind of my my prediction on things. Let's see. I had a couple more notes. Was it Ben McElmore getting six free throw attempts all on three shot fouls? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty ugly. I can't remember who it was who got him on those. Um, this is this isn't the Buck section, but well, you brought up the Eric Blood, so or this is the Buck section. But we might be seeing this kind of like secondary race to the bottom, not of the bottom, with the Blazers and the Pacers and a few of these other teams, which yeah. could get could get out of control. Now that that may yeah that may get out of control. We'll see whether CJ. What happens with CJ and uh, Sabonis potentially as well? Well, so especially yeah, here, because I, I the found, other teams yeah. in their vicinity are trying. So like you, you you're going to have a different a, a disparity there, and then the bottom teams. Like, I mean, the Thunder have won some games recently, and like we'll, we'll see we'll see how how it falls. So, uh, yeah, I found the rest of my notes here. Yay. Uh, Portis, before he went 6 of 8, had been 10 out of 39 on threes in his last few games. And, you know, Giannis, just his evolution continues to fascinate me. He actually looks like he's gotten a little slimmer. Not that he was in any way 
you know, a high body fat or anything like that, but just through the shoulders and arms, he doesn't look quite to be carrying quite as much weight, which I think overall is probably a good thing for him. Now that's ironic because he's playing more center than he's ever played in his career. And you know, there was one player where Nurkic ducked him and he's always been pretty bad defending the post, even going back to that series against the Celtics where Al Horford got him in foul trouble in, uh, I think that was 18. But the other thing that I've liked about, I think that'll just be good for like his long-term potential wear and tear to be a little bit slimmer and lighter. The other thing I liked about him is that he just continues to look a little bit more comfortable. He is at 28% from three, but from the free throw line, he's been better this year. And also just rising up for a mid-range jumper. Like at one point, I think he was being guarded by Nurkic. He went between his legs a couple of times and then just pulled up right in his face for a jumper from 17 feet. And that's, that's a shot that if he's being guarded by centers, I think he really needs and be able to add that they went away obviously from some of the Giannis ISO stuff in last year's playoffs but I think to be able to have that in the bag uh, is really encouraging the Bucks were so into the switching that they even had Greg Monroe switching out on guys that that didn't go quite <laughs> no not fantastic no all right well let's finish up here talking about the Miami Heat and their blowout of Charlotte we are going to see them again tomorrow night for the NBA cast against the Washington Wizards what are the Heat's fundamentals Miami on the season 25 and 15, 9 and 5 since the last 1560, and they were 9 and 4 in the previous 1560. So remarkable consistency there. Fourth in net rating at plus 5.2, just ahead of the Bucks. Seventh in offense, fifth in defense. And the Raptor model projects that they will finish first in the Eastern Conference with 52 wins, and they're going to make the playoffs. That core thing, that note, Lowry, Butler, and Bam have only played 557 possessions together, but a plus 5.6 net rating is pretty good. Not unbelievable, but pretty good. Yeah, you would have hoped maybe that's a little bit better than that. I'll also again, note 99 defensive rating, which is fantastic. It's just that the offense hasn't yeah. been strong in those minutes. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's something to note too, that they do have some concerns with their shooting in the front quarter and i think most series that they're gonna be in seth and i talked about this on his show yesterday actually that i think whatever series they're gonna be in is gonna be a total bloodbath so getting to this charlotte miami game it was a 34 to 8 run i'm sorry 35 to 8 run in the third quarter that put this away after it was close at the beginning miami really struggled to shoot it they missed 16 of their 18 three-pointers in the first half and then actually started hitting them while Charlotte really struggled. And I thought this, we'll talk about Charlotte some. We'll save a little bit for tomorrow because I know you did some work on them as well. But I thought it was interesting against Miami switching that Charlotte for all of their offensive brilliance, they've fallen off a little bit. They were second in offense. Now they're kind of in the five to 10 range. They don't really have anyone who's elite beating a switch. And then you throw in that the Heat, most of the time when they're doing their switching, they're going to have four very good defenders out there and then either Robinson or Hero. And they had a little success, particularly end of the second quarter, trying to get Miles Bridges matched up against Robinson or Hero. And Bridges is able to attack, go to those spin moves in the lane, overwhelm them physically and get to the front of the rim so that looked pretty decent but charlotte has all these guys who can shoot they can run pick and roll etc but there isn't really that one guy who's going to just cause a massive matchup problem for an individual on the other team if they are switching and obviously miami has probably the best switching personnel in the league Lamelo really rough game for him he got in foul trouble in the first half and then took a couple of pretty bad threes coming down as the heat were building their lead jimmy butler also really caused a lot of problems for the hornets just out of pick and roll getting right to the rim it had a couple of nice plays in isolation as well out, out of triple threat hornets don't have a great guy 
to guard him and and he really made them play particularly if they're in any kind of pick and roll situation bam out of bio cooper moorhead had this stat that since he returned from his injuries only at 31 percent on twos away from the rim and at one point was one of nine on those shots he he was trying to go one-on-one a little bit more at plumley didn't have a ton of success took a lot of shots and what, hit he enough did, in he the did third. 21 shots in 28 minutes yeah and, and a lot of those were away from the basket as well which uh was pretty interesting and, and he's still he's I think it's a good thing that he's taking those shots, particularly if they have to go up against Milwaukee and Brooke Lopez, who just stood under the basket last year in the playoffs and made him shoot those. And he got scared to shoot him by the end because he wasn't making him. Uh, but it did kind of, when he even when he's attacking Plumlee, for all of his strength and athleticism, Bam is like kind of a finesse player on offense. Like he doesn't really power through guys. He wants to, he'll shoot more floaters and jumpers. And he's not really like attacking the backboard when he's going into the lane. What I loved so much about him at times is when he gets smaller players on him and he really backs down and gets in there but we didn't see much of that you know i thought he could he has the physical advantage on Plumlee. just didn't really try and take it uh you know duncan robinson has gotten some criticism this year he's got this new contract he's not shooting it that well he's in the mid-30s but you could see the value of him even when he was 0 for 5 at the time they ran the same play three times in the third where they had robinson come out of the left corner get up to the top of the key get a handoff even though the hornets were switching a lot they still you know they're putting two on the ball the center is getting out there to take away that three going to his right and then he was able to find a nice pocket pass three times in a row to get either out of bio or dead rolling right to the rim for pretty easy looks so you still see the value of robinson yeah it'd be nice if he's hitting 44 percent again like he did uh, the first year that he burst on the scene but he still is a very valuable player uh, with the way defenses fear him and the type of difficult shots that he can take switching back to the hornets briefly there were a couple of truly ghastly box scores in this game gordon hayward started and scored zero points he was 0 of 7 from the field and this is his second game back from being in the protocols and then kelly Ubre, who had a higher proportion of his game in, in garbage time but still Ubre nine points on three of 15 from the field one of nine from three as the Hornets struggled to 10 of 36 from three overall yeah obviously their failure to make shots and the heat finally hitting them in, in the second did make a big difference I mean to go have that 35 to 8 third quarter and that this is a good offensive team and Miami was clamping down there were not many good shots being taken by the Hornets for sure in that period as I noted Plumley definitely had some very Plumley moments in this game there was one time where he gets a rebound decided to like push the ball up and then immediately when he got some resistance had to give it up to Miles Bridges who had been waiting for an outlet to like really push it up and then Plumley immediately gets this on a switch tries to go down into the post and Miles Bridges just looks him off and takes a three which he, he missed of course Plumley had another time where he tried to post up on Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler laughed at him and, and took his lunch money so the, those were for a good offensive team in theory with better options you don't like to see too much of that especially you know trying to attack Minnesota so Plumley has had some other really good games including one that did for the NBA cast which may have been the best game I've ever seen him play. But this uh, this was more of the over-posting up, over-pushing the ball up the floor, kind of selfish play, feeling like you want to do something, stuff when there are superior options, which was frustrating from him. All right, I think that will do it for this 15 in 60. What did it end up being here? How many teams do we have left <laughs> at this point? You got Pistons, Hawks, Celtics, 
Orlando. So we have four teams left. So we got to 11 teams. But yeah, we had the trade. We had a bunch of games we looked at. So this Harden and Simmons thing. So we got a lot done here. Hopefully you feel satisfied with only 11 teams. And we'll get to the other four tomorrow. Thanks so much uh, again for being a subscriber, by the way. If you are not a subscriber, we've got a ton of people to sign up. We've got over 150 signups in honor of the mock trade deadline. That sale is still active, by the way. And you can get total access, which is our salary sheets, free agent rankings, which I recently updated as well. Salary sheets will be out probably tomorrow morning with the two trades that have happened in the last few days. You're going to get our instant reactions, of course, on Dunked on Prime to all the trade deadline stuff. So never, if you haven't tried it yet, give it a shot. Hopefully we're, we basically react to anything important that happens in the NBA ever. And it, hopefully that's useful to you. And you can also get Danny's in my chats, access to our discord, lots of little extras with total access. And you can get that for cheaper on a monthly basis than if you just have the podcast only plan. That sale is probably going to run until right after the actual trade deadline is over. So we'll talk to you all again on Monday till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.